what I want to do this morning is I want to ask one question which will lead to three questions. And uh, the three questions are all related, just on different levels. So the big question I'm going to be asking is, is the church, and I'm not just talking about this church, is the church falling apart? And the three questions that I'm going to ask and then attempt to answer uh, is uh, asking that same question three times, but in three different settings. We're going to be considering the church universal. We're going to be considering the national church here in the United States of America. And then we're going to be on a very local and personal level considering tree of life. Um, There's a couple of reasons why uh, this was on my mind. Obviously, Jerry has already mentioned that we had a a church-wide meeting last week. Uh, But also, um, I'm on several Christian email lists and I get stuff come across my computer that catches my attention from time to time. And this week, timing-wise, I got an email which uh, had to do with, how many of you have heard of George Barna? The name George Barna? So we've got one or two hands. Not too many are familiar with him. But he's a, he's a brother in the Lord, a Christian who has served the, the church primarily in the United States but he served the church for many years and his ministry is focused on doing surveys. Um, we sang a song about surveying the cross. David emphasized that in a word of exhortation at the beginning of our worship time this morning. And what, what Barna does is essentially their research group does surveys of people primarily, as I said, in the United States of America to just get a gauge on what's going on in the church in this country. So anyway, they just recently did a new survey and the results came out this last week. I got an email with the results and there were, I'll probably mention two or three of the results a little bit later in our study this morning. But the first one was this, for the first time as far as since he's been doing this survey, and this would certainly apply to before he started doing these surveys in prior generations. But for the very first time, um, the survey showed that under 50% of the, just the general population in the United States of America, um, for the first time, responded that they no longer attend church of any kind or any variety. So in all of the surveys he's done prior to this, there's been over 50% of the people that live in this country that responded and said, yes, I attend church or my family attends church. It might be a Catholic church. It might be a Protestant church. It might be some non-denominational church like ours. But more than 50%, and it used to be, I mean, not that long ago. I remember this number It used to be 75% of the people in this country considered themselves somewhat regular church attenders. Now that number has fallen under 50% for the first time. And so with that result, and then with our own experience, um, as we've already mentioned just this last week, going through a a church meeting and a reevaluation of the the state of the union, so to speak, of, of this local church, 
it led me to this question, which is, is the church falling apart? So let's, let's look at the church in its three scripture-revealed aspects. And there are three aspects to the church. So there is the universal church. The universal church has to do with, we're not talking about denominations here. We're not talking about brands. We're not talking about specific names on a sign out in front of a building. We're talking about the universal church as it really is in the eyes of the Lord, in heaven's perspective, which is every single, at any moment in history, like right now, if we just froze time, at this moment in history, over the population of the entire planet Earth, there is a specific number. I have no idea what that specific number currently is today. But there is a specific number of those who truly have been born again. They are identified by the Lord as among his sheep. He owns them as his own. And that number is a huge number. I just can't give you a specific number because only the Lord at any given moment in history knows what that number is. But it is a number so large, it's a number so great, and will be eventually a number so large and so great that it's described in the book of Revelation around the throne of God when all things are summed up as a number myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands around the throne of the truly redeemed. But the question is, is the universal church, the total number of those who truly belong to the Lord, who are born again, is the universal church on earth struggling or falling apart in its struggle? So I'm going to ask these three questions. That's the first one. And then I'm going to give you a specific answer to each one of those questions. It's the only right way to answer these three questions. But each question that I'm asking is going to be answered differently. So is the universal church falling apart at this moment in history? And the answer to that is a strong and definitive no. The universal church is not struggling in the sense of a struggle that means the church is falling apart. Is the universal church struggling in the sense of there are difficulties? Are there challenges? Being committed to the Lord, being faithful to the Lord, really truly belonging to the Lord, and living in a world that does not acknowledge him and is certainly not faithful to him. Yes, in that sense, there's always a struggle. But is, is the universal church struggling in the sense of it's, it's right on the precipice of falling apart so that as some in the world at different times in history have claimed um, it won't be long and Christianity won't exist anymore. There was a famous philosopher by the name of Voltaire who lived in early American history times. He was from France, but during the French Revolution, during the American Revolution, and he made a proclamation. He was very intelligent and um, acknowledged at that time in history as maybe the greatest living philosopher on earth at the time and highly respected by the intelligentsia of the day. And uh, he 
claimed that within his generation, which within his time on earth, that Christianity was going to come to a final crashing end and would be no more. Because he saw signs as he looked around the culture that surrounded him that Christianity was diminishing. Christianity has since the time of Voltaire. Voltaire has come to an end. But since that time, Christianity has only exploded. I mean, there were lots and lots of Christians that were alive in the time of Voltaire. But since then, the last 200 years since he made that proclamation, Christianity has literally exploded beyond all expectation or anticipation. So where I want to start us this morning is when you're asking a question that big, is the universal church falling apart? Uh, It's critically important to have heaven's perspective. And I want to share with you a passage that the Lord... The Lord called my attention to years and years ago. I don't even remember how long ago it was, but it must have been 30 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that even. And um, used it to encourage my heart. It's it's in Ezekiel chapter 8, and this chapter opens up. It's it's the beginning of a section that stretches from chapter 8 in Ezekiel to chapter 12. Someday... If the Lord allows, I would like to teach through this section of Ezekiel. It's a particularly powerful section, but it's a very difficult section. Not in the sense of difficult to understand so much, though there are some mysteries in the book of Ezekiel that require some extra explanation. But it's difficult because of the kind of communication it is from the Lord to his people through the prophet who is Ezekiel. It's a time where the people of God who were at that moment in history identified by the nation of Israel, the people of God were struggling. They were, they had been carried away from their homeland, from the promised land, from where the temple of God was and the house of God, the meeting place with God. They'd been carried away into captivity. They were enslaved now in Babylon. And they were struggling in their captivity. Now they were, they, backstory, they absolutely deserved the judgment of the Lord that had fallen upon the nation. And there are many, many reasons why they deserved it. But this is a, a, a difficult and challenging moment in Israel's history. And in that moment, the Lord gives this extended prophecy from chapter 8 to chapter 12. And it starts in a very interesting and unusual way. And it's just the first few verses that I want to share with you to start our consideration this morning. In chapter 8, verse 1, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, and he's talking about the sixth year, Ezekiel's experience now, the sixth year of their captivity in Babylon. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house. And why all the, the, the calendaring, sixth year, sixth month, fifth day? It's just a reminder, what he's about to describe as a, a visionary spiritual experience. But he wants you to understand this visionary experience is rooted in real world circumstances. On that day, as I sat in my house, with the elders of Judah sitting before me. So apparently, this was a leadership meeting in the house of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet and the elders of the 
captivated people of the Lord have come to meet with Ezekiel in his house. And they're sitting there, and this happens to Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Now, normally when we think about the hand of the Lord falling upon a person, it's almost always from the perspective of a, uh, you know, a positive experience. You know, I, I would want, even as I'm speaking this morning, I would want, if I could choose, for the hand of the Lord to fall upon me for your benefit, right? And I would want, as you're sitting there, the hand of the Lord to fall upon you. You know, uh, think of the Lord as a parent and us as his children. The hand of the Lord, the hand of a parent can fall upon the child for multiple reasons. Can be for blessing and benefit. It can be for provision. It can be expression of love or it can be disciplinary. Depending upon what? Not just the mood of the parent, I hope, in your case, but for the sake of the child. Whatever the child needs from the parent, that's how the hand of the parent should fall upon the child. In this case, the Lord is the parent, and Israel are his children, and the hand of the Lord falls upon one of the children who is representing the children to the Lord, Ezekiel. He is about to experience something so that through his eyes, the entire nation can share the experience. This is what happens when the hand of the Lord falls upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Now, what Ezekiel is beginning to experience here is a vision, spiritual vision, a vision from the Lord, but he has seen the Lord himself in this vision. This is what we will be studying soon in our Thursday night studies. This is what we call a Christophany. This is the Lord himself appearing to Ezekiel before he ever incarnated as a human being in the person of Jesus. So behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire. So from the waist down, all Ezekiel could see was he was on fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Now, I'm not going to dig into the imagery there, but it's all significant. He put out the form of a hand. This is the figure, the flaming from the waist down and, and, and gloriously gleaming from the waist up. This figure puts out a hand and the emphasis here is he's putting out the hand toward Ezekiel. This is the hand of the Lord falling upon Ezekiel. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. What is the lock of my head? It's not one of those things that you take a key and open up. He grabbed hold of Ezekiel's hair by his hand. Now, is this the hand of blessing? How many of you as parents have ever reached out and grabbed a hold of your child by the hair of their head? Probably not, right? That'd be a pretty extreme form of laying your hand upon them. This is an extreme form of the Lord's hand falling upon the head of Ezekiel, not because Ezekiel is worse 
spiritually condition-wise than the rest of the children of Israel, but because Ezekiel represents the nation. And what the Lord is about to do to Ezekiel, he wants the nation to benefit from. He put out the form of a hand and he took me by a lock of my head. And this part is where the Lord used this passage years ago to catch my heart's attention. He took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Remember, Ezekiel's in Babylon, but he needs to travel to Jerusalem. And he didn't have access to the way that I recently traveled to Kenya. Um, His travel was a more direct route. Um, He traveled in the spirit and by the spirit from Babylon to Jerusalem. I don't think Ezekiel physically traveled from one location to the other, but I do think that he spiritually traveled in the vision of the Lord. But what's described as his experience is he experienced the Lord grabbing him by a lock of his head and then using his hair to literally, by the Lord's power, lift him up between heaven and earth. Um, sometimes you don't see this as much anymore because you don't see these as much anymore but sometimes in the old days when you would go to the circus how many of you have ever in the old days ever went to a circus and you used to I mean how many times do you see circuses coming around anymore it's very unusual and mostly the acts are on TV when they are anymore but in the old days you'd go to the circus and you'd see a performer and one of the performers typically was and it was usually a woman. Um, she would have her hair tied up in a, in a knot and then she would chain herself to something and get lifted up and start twirling around. And everybody would be amazed because, you know, how can you do that? You've got to have really strong hair, right? And my joke, of course, is, you know, if the Lord laid his hand upon me, he wouldn't have anything to grab hold of. So the Lord lifted him up between heaven and earth and he brought him to Jerusalem and the rest of the chapters that follow, all of eight, all of nine, all of 10, all of 11, all of 12, are about what the Lord showed him in Jerusalem. And it wasn't a pretty picture. Israel, spiritually speaking, because there were some Israelites that were left in Jerusalem and some that were in captivity and there was going to be a second invasion by Babylon and a second captivity. There were two waves of the captivity that took place. And Ezekiel was part of the first wave and he was being taken back to Jerusalem to see what was still going on in Jerusalem and still even going on behind the closed doors of the temple, the house of God. And it was spiritually ugly. It was not good. And the Lord was showing it to him to say, there's a reason why there's a second invasion coming There's a reason why there's going to be a second captivity. There's a reason why things are about to get really, really bad in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sharing this to say things are getting really, really bad for the universal church. What I'm sharing this to show is that in in times like this, for us, it's critically important for us to be able to see like Ezekiel saw. Yes, the process of getting from earth to be lifted up between earth and heaven was a difficult and challenging one. But the benefit of being lifted up was what? 
now Ezekiel could see above natural human perspective. The implication is everybody else was locked in to their natural horizontal perspective. They could only see what was going on immediately around them and they weren't really seeing through the Lord's eyes. Ezekiel now has the benefit of a higher view, a higher perspective, a heavenly one. And of course, in his journey through these next several chapters, he has the benefit of an angelic guide who is going to be pointing things out to him and offering him the Lord's explanation of what's going on and why things are about to change in the Lord's work. So we benefit during times of crisis or difficulty or challenge if we can come up by God's grace to a higher and more heavenly perspective. And it would benefit us to be able to see the church, the big picture of the church through the Lord's viewpoint. So I'm gonna share with you, I'm gonna do this fairly quickly. I'm gonna share with you four of my personal favorite passages about the current state of the universal church. Let's go to the book of Daniel. I've shared this passage before. I shared it in great detail when, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter two. Uh, I shared it in great detail when I taught through the entire book of Daniel, but that was about 10 years ago and that was on Thursday night, so not every one of you benefited from that. And even those who did uh, will benefit from a reminder of the main point of this passage I'm about to read. I'm reading a, a, a fairly lengthy section. It's about 15 verses. And um, it's going to start in verse 31. And what has happened, the setting here is the king of Babylon who has captivated the children of Israel that Ezekiel was experiencing, the king of Babylon who was Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest of all the Babylonian kings. And at this time, Babylon was the greatest in terms of geopolitical and military power and economic power. Babylon was far and away the greatest nation on the face of the earth at this particular moment in history. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king at the height of their power and influence. And Nebuchadnezzar was just motoring along, enjoying his glorious position as the strongest king and the strongest nation on the face of the earth. And the Lord interrupted his experience by giving him a dream one night and it was a deeply troubling dream and he lost sleep over it it bothered him so deeply that he called for all of the greatest wise counselors in his kingdom to be gathered together and he wanted to understand his dream but he knew that some of these guys some of his wisest counselors were somewhat manipulative in the way that they would answer his questions. And so he decided to put them all to the test. He didn't gather them together and say, guys, here's my dream, tell me what it means, because that would be easy. If you told me your dream and said, tell me what it means, I could just make anything up. And you wouldn't know whether it was true or not in terms of the right way to understand it. But he put them to the test and the test was this. I want to understand my dream, but so that I can trust that you really get it, I want you to first tell me what it is I dreamed. And I'm not telling you what I dreamed. 
You tell me what I dreamed, and if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I'll trust you to tell me what it means. And of course, none of the counselors had any clue, any idea. And Daniel was among those counselors, and he asked the king, give me, give me one night to just go pray, and then I'll answer you tomorrow. And the king gave him the night, and he went and prayed, and he, the Lord was gracious to Daniel, and the Lord revealed to Daniel exactly what the king had dreamed because the Lord had given the dream to the king. And then we're going to start reading where Daniel now is speaking to the king, explaining to him what he dreamed and what it meant. And this has everything to do because what the Lord's dream to Nebuchadnezzar meant was he was telling him how history was going to be unfolding over the next several hundred years and then for the rest of history beyond those next several hundred years as well. So this has everything to do with the state of the universal church. Let's read from verse Daniel 2 verse 31. I'm going to read through verse 45 and I'm only going to stop at a couple of places to make comment. You saw, O king, Daniel telling him his dream, And behold, a great image. This image was a giant statue, is what Nebuchadnezzar had seen. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. This is why the king was so upset that he lost sleep after having this dream. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked didn't just see a statue he saw a statue being destroyed as you looked a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this was the dream now we will tell the king its interpretation you O king the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. This is why Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled. He didn't fully understand that he was the head of gold before Daniel explained it to him. But down deep in his heart, he knew this had something to do with him and his kingdom. You are the head of gold. But what happens in the dream? Remember, what just happened in the dream to the head of gold? The head of gold was never struck. The feet were struck. But the head of gold was destroyed along with the rest of the statue. Because if you destroy the feet of the statue, what happens to the whole statue? The whole statue is destroyed. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, stopping there into verse 43 for a moment he saw this vision of a single a singular statue but had four parts to it and just the this is a very 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 short form brief you know synopsis of the meaning what the lord was showing him was four great world dominating kingdoms in ancient history the first the head the second the the chest and the arms the third the torso and the thighs, and the fourth, the legs and the feet. And those four kingdoms were the kingdoms of Babylon, then the Medeo-Persian kingdom, which became later the Persian kingdom only, which was then followed by the Greek kingdom, which was then followed by the Roman Empire. And those four kingdoms, they had not appeared yet on history in that form. Only the head of gold existed at the time that he had this dream. But all four unfolded in history exactly as the Lord was showing Daniel. And of course, the Roman kingdom led to the stone in the dream. The stone in the dream is Christ, the Lord Jesus, a singular, small stone coming and striking the feet of the statue during a specific moment in history, which was during the Roman Empire. And when he struck the statue, everything changed from that moment forward. And verse 44 says, this is the conclusion of Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And in the days of those kings, which kings? The kings of the Roman Empire, the, the, the 10 Julian emperors corresponding to the 10 toes that are focused on in the feet of the statue. During the time of those 10 emperors, which is exactly when Jesus entered the world. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The statue will be destroyed. The Babylonian empire will be destroyed. The Persian empire will be destroyed. The Greek empire under Alexander the Great will be destroyed. The Roman empire under the greatest emperors that had ever marched on human history will be destroyed but this new kingdom that will be introduced during that era which is a different kind of kingdom it's not a military kingdom it's not a political economic based kingdom it's entirely a spiritual kingdom this new kingdom will be set up not by any human emperor, but by the God of heaven himself. And that kingdom will never be destroyed if Daniel is a true prophet and if he is speaking the true word of the Lord. And he goes on to say, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. See, the Babylonian empire was left to the Persians. The Persian empire was left to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And the Greek empire, as great as it was, 
Alexander had conquered more territory than any human being had ever conquered in all of history before him. But he suddenly died in his young 30s at the height of his conquest. Unexpectedly died. Not from battle, just got sick and died. And then his kingdom was left to the Romans who came in and swallowed it all up. But this kingdom, this new kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, not only will never be destroyed, but it will never be left to another people. No one is going to supplant this kingdom. And then he says in the middle of verse 44, it, this new kingdom, this different kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And then this last line, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. And every detail of this prophecy came to be fulfilled exactly as Daniel declared it to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's still in fulfillment because the stone, after destroying the statue, was transformed. What happened to the stone? It grew. It grew into what? A great mountain. And then what happened to the mountain? Because the mountain kept changing. The mountain kept growing until it filled the entire earth. Now, this is not something that, that geographically is possible in a natural sense, but spiritually, it's the only way to properly describe what the Lord is doing in history since that day that Christ the stone struck the foot of the statue. And that is one mountain, one stone growing into one mountain, and that one mountain continuing to grow from that point forward without any stopping point of its growth until it filled the entire earth. One world-dominating mountain that grew from a single stone. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. What I'm sharing with you in this Daniel passage, and I'm going to pick up a little bit of speed here as I go forward. Uh, Daniel, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7. We're still answering the first question. Is the universal church struggling? The answer to that is a definitive no. The universal church is doing one thing. What's it doing? It is growing and filling the entire earth. Jesus was the stone. He grew in his resurrection and ascension into a great mountain. But that mountain is still growing and it will never stop growing, and it will fill the entire earth. Does that mean everybody on earth will be saved? No, absolutely not. But it does mean that the church, the kingdom in its most obvious, natural presentation to the world, will continue to grow until it fills the entire world. And there is no stopping that process. Isaiah chapter 9, you're familiar with this passage. We read it every Christmas as we should, but I want to read beyond the Christmas portion of it. Just two verses, though. 
Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us, or for to us, a child is born. What child? The Christ child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, and there are four names given here, spiritual names, spiritual descriptions of who he is and what he would accomplish, not just for his moment in history, but for all of eternity to follow. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each name deserves its own study. We won't have time for that today, but let's read on to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not, is going to try to do this. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe not. We'll see. Who knows what's going to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you understand what the word zeal means? It's not a word we use a lot anymore. But it means very, very motivated. This is describing the Lord's own heart in relationship to this declaration. The Lord himself is filled with zeal. He is very, very motivated to accomplish this very thing that's described in these two verses. Two short verses, fairly short. There's actually kind of lengthy verses, but two verses, but oh man, so much packed into these verses. But it's talking about this child that enters the world and he is going to be associated with a new government, a spiritual government, a higher government, a heavenly kind of government. And of course, for a government in a kingdom setting, you have to have, every king needs one thing, one thing. What do they need? They need a throne, a representation of their authority. And so there is a kingdom, there is a government, and there is a throne. Here it's identified as the throne of David. The people of Israel were expecting that throne of David to continue forever on earth. And it did continue for a while on earth. But its ultimate continuation moved from earth to heaven as Christ ascended. And when he ascended, as we recently studied together, he sat down when he returned to heaven. And he didn't just sit down on some side chair in heaven. He sat down upon the throne and he began to rule. And as he begins to rule, verse 7 says this about the nature of his rule. And it has everything to do with is the universal church today. We're 2,000 years since Christ came, but even further, maybe 2,600 years since this prophecy was given, 2,700 years, somewhere in that vicinity. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That tells us not just that once the kingdom of Christ starts, it won't end. It tells us Once the kingdom of Christ starts, it will never stop doing what? Increasing, growing. And it never has stopped increasing. The universal church knows no backward momentum. There is no backward momentum to the universal church. There are more Christians today, I'm talking about true believers, 
not those who just say they are, not even those who just think they are, but those who actually are. There are more true Christians today than there ever have been in all of human history. And here's the truth of it. Tomorrow, I'm talking about Monday morning, tomorrow, there will be even more. And Tuesday, there will be even more than there were on Monday. And every day since Christ ascended, that's been the story of history. This is an increasing thing that has lost zero momentum from a universal, big picture perspective. Now, this one I'll just quote because we camped here in our Matthew study. It should be well familiar to you. I'll give you the address. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. You know the story. Before the day of Pentecost, the disciples often didn't get what Jesus was talking about. And this is one of those classic cases. But Jesus makes this declaration to them that later they will fully understand it. But you and I should fully understand it. Jesus said, I am just quoting a portion of it. The, the, the relevant portion to what we're considering this morning. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what Jesus is doing there is he's giving what we call a purpose statement. He's announcing what he's here to accomplish. Why did you come to this world, Jesus? What are you here to do? What is your life going to mean once you are gone from this planet? And at this present moment in history, he is gone from this planet in terms of his physical presence. What does it all mean? What it means is this. I will build my church. He started on the day of Pentecost and he's continued that building project every day since then and he's making lots and lots of progress. He's not done yet. The church is still in construction. It's still under construction, but we're talking about the universal church. But one thing you can be certain of, because he adds it to his statement about building And the gates of hell will not, he doesn't say, man, I am just hoping that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But you know how it is. It's a tough battle. I hope we make it through. I've been in battles that I wasn't sure I was going to make it through. I shared one just recently, you know, in my trip to, to Kenya. But when the Lord makes a statement and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my purpose to build my church, you can take that statement to the bank. Last one on this question, Ephesians chapter 3. This is a prayer. Paul the Apostle prayed for one church, one local church, But he broadens his prayer, as sometimes we should. He broadens his prayer to a greater perspective, and he's now praying for the universal church, not just the Ephesian church. Verse 14 of chapter 3 in Ephesians, Paul prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. How many generations have there been since Paul prayed this prayer? And there are some prayers that we prayed as believers that the Lord never answered in the way we wanted him to answer it. I guarantee you that when Paul prayed this prayer, he was praying it under the immediate direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Lord is answering this prayer in exactly the way Paul prayed. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So here's the evaluation of history from a universal perspective, a big picture, a heavenly perspective. God the Father is getting glory in Christ Jesus as history is unfolding. The fullness of that glory hasn't yet been seen, but it will be seen. And in the same exact way, to the same extent, to the same degree, God will ultimately receive glory in the church on earth as history finally concludes. The most glorious thing about all of history will be the church and his son, Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's going to happen. Now, is the church universal falling apart? Definitively no. Second question. And here, Joe, we can go to the second slide. See how, see how audio-visual we are now? <laughs> All right. Second question, nationally. Is the church in America struggling? Is the church in America on the edge, on the verge of falling apart? Yes. Definitively, yes. It matters that less than half of the people in this country are now regular church attenders. And I will tell you this, even less than that half are attending healthy churches. There's a lot of churches out there that are not spiritually healthy at all from the Lord's perspective. And so that 50%, or really it's under 50% number, is much less than that in terms of numbers of Americans at this moment in history that are attending God-honoring, God-glorifying, Bible-believing, true and healthy churches. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's much less than 50%. I can, I can be confident in telling you. Now, let me give you two more statistics from Barna's recent survey. Now, he was surveying about this question is the group that he's asking, do they consider themselves to be holding to faithfully a biblical worldview in the way they see the world and the way they live their lives? And what he defined that as, I don't want to go into all the details of the survey, is, is it, are they basically seeing the world through the lens of Scripture? And are they living their lives through the lens of Scripture? This was the number of Americans answering the survey that saw themselves living according to a biblical worldview, 6%. That's a low number. It's probably pretty accurate. 
maybe less than 6%, actually. Because you know how it is. When you're taking a survey, you always want to see yourself in a positive light. So you're always going to tend to answer in a positive way that puts you in a positive light. Here's a worse number. 6% of Americans, right? He surveyed a large number of pastors. And I'm going to put that word in air quotes. He surveyed a large number of pastors. 37% of the pastors that he surveyed were holding to a biblical worldview. 37% of the pastors were holding to a biblical worldview. So is the church, it wasn't always this way in this country. Is the church in this country struggling? Yes. Is the church in this country on the verge of falling apart? And I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about the church in the United States of America, all the individual churches combined. Yes. Struggling? Yes. Right on the precipice of falling apart. Maybe it's already fallen apart. 37% of pastors. Come on. That's falling apart. It wasn't always that way. I will tell you this, it's not that way in Africa. I mean, these African pastors that I just, again, now the ninth time had the privilege of teaching, um, they don't know as much as many of the pastors here, but what they know, they live. What they know, they're committed to. What they do know, what the Lord has taught them, what the Lord has revealed to them, they grab hold of it and they value it and they are hungry for more of it. But that's not the way it is here at this moment in history. Why is that happening? Well, I'll I'll just say there's multiple smaller reasons, but here's the one big reason. What Barna described as a biblical worldview, what I'm just going to describe in a more simple way of faithfulness to the word of God. It really boils down to that. Faithfulness to the word of God, faithfulness to scripture. And what's happening in this nation is something else as a primary influence is replacing our adherence to, our faithfulness to, our commitment to, our belief in, and our willingness to live out the principles of scripture. What's replacing it? I'll just use a single word to describe it. It's a big word. It's got a lot of subcategories. Media is replacing scripture. Media includes the internet, huge influence. Movies, huge influence. Television, huge influence. Social media, huge influence. Those things are replacing the influence of the word of God in this country. And uh, as a result, yes. I can only answer that second question in that way. Let's go to the third slide on a local level. It's Tree of Life, this church now, our gathering, our church. It's really the Lord's church, but ours in the sense sense that we identify with it. We're part of it. It's our family. Is Tree of Life struggling? Is Tree of Life on the verge of falling apart? I'm going to answer this one yes and no. This is a split answer. Yes and no. Here's the no part. Last week we did have a church meeting a couple of you have already spoken to this, Jerry, and in particular, I appreciated what you shared, Jerry. Um, so we had a church meeting in order to kind of like do a state of the church evaluation together and discuss it as God's family. It was a very healthy meeting. I agree with Jerry entirely. It was a good meeting. It was a rich meeting. 
Um, not everything that was discussed was easy to discuss. Not everything was discussed was was enjoyable from the standpoint of, oh, I want to hear that. Uh, but everything was good. Everything was spoken respectfully. Everything was spoken from the heart. Everything was helpful and beneficial and potentially adding to our growth as a body of people. I will just tell you this. Healthy churches don't have meetings like that. Uh, excuse me. Unhealthy churches don't have meetings like that. <laughs> One word can really make a difference. Healthy churches do have meetings like that. Um, some of you younger ones, some of you that have more recently joined the church, I've referred to this before, but I'll just briefly say it again. Um, 25 years ago, this church had a similar meeting. Similar only in the sense that all the members of the church came together to, to do a state of the, the union discussion of church life. And it got, uh, oh man, it got so ugly. I mean, I, you wouldn't even believe my description. We had members of the church yelling in the meeting at other members of the church, insulting other members of the church. A large group insulting the, the lead pastor of the church, who thankfully wasn't me at that moment. <laughs> and I only say that because, believe me, I was there, and I was like, oh, man. Um, yeah, it was just really bad. And it, and it led to a, a, a major upheaval in the church, and and more than half the church ended up going away that day. But even worse, the lead pastor of the church, at the end of the meeting, asked for all of the elders to, we had, we had our own facility at the time, and asked for all of the elders to meet him in his office in another part of the facility, and we went over and met in his office, and he said, okay, here's what I took away from the meeting. I'm resigning. That's it, I'm out of here. I'm not taking this anymore. I'm gone. And he did. He walked out that day, never came back. Um, you should be thankful that I didn't walk away last week after the meeting was over. I was actually encouraged. I was blessed. I was edified. And I hope you were as well. Because that's what the meeting was about. And that's what the takeaway should be from the meeting. So is Tree of Life struggling to the point of almost falling apart? Yes and no. Tree of Life is struggling. But it's not on the verge of falling apart. That kind of meaning can only strengthen us rather than tearing us apart or tearing us down. But there is real struggle in the church. For instance, two or three of you uh, after the meeting um, came to talk to me in a good way. And others of you have in recent weeks come and talked to me about the same issue. What about some of the younger ones among us who have have disconnected. Some have even fallen away. Some have, have, um, have crossed lines into really, really unhealthy and dangerous personal circumstances. Um, they were part of us, and for anyone in the church to struggle at that level represents the church struggling at that level. So there is a real struggle going on at Tree of Life at this particular moment in time. And it reminded me, I've done this teaching in depth, so I'm just going to reference it rather than taking you to the passage. But the second 
half of Revelation chapter 1 and the first portion of Revelation chapter 2. It's a vision that John the Apostle is given of the Lord Jesus in his ascended glory. And then he sees the Lord in his ascended glory standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And the Lord explains the vision to John and says, the lampstands that you see are the seven churches. And that letter, the, the book of Revelation, was a letter from the Lord to his people. It was sent specifically in chapters 2 and 3 to seven individual local churches. Just like Tree of Life, being an individual local church. And in those two chapters, chapter 2 and 3 that follow, the Lord speaks a specific and different word to each one of those seven churches. And every single one of those seven churches was struggling in some way. But they were struggling in various ways and in different, to different degrees. And the Lord, in, in, in a couple of cases, had very encouraging words to speak to the churches that were struggling. And in other cases, he had very severe and very challenging words of rebuke and correction to speak to the churches. I'm not going to tell you this morning whether the Lord, if he were to appear in the midst of this lampstand this morning, would give us an encouraging word or whether he would give us a word of rebuke. That's for the Lord to determine, not me. But I will just say to you, churches do struggle. Real churches, true churches do struggle. Why do real, true churches struggle? Let me just remind you of three main reasons. One, what I was saying about the church in America is true of this church as well. We're only as healthy as our biblical commitments. And that is true not just for us as a church. I have a responsibility to faithfully teach you the word of God. And then, as, as was brought up in the meeting last Sunday, you have a responsibility in terms of what you do with what you are faithfully taught. And not just me teaching you, you in your own study, you in your own reading, you in your own meditation in God's word. We all have a responsibility. And the church is only as healthy, only as healthy as what every single member of this church is doing with that great responsibility that we've been given. That's it. That's the true measurement. That's the, the, the actual dipstick and the hidden true condition of the engine of the car. You put it in there, you pull it out, and you can see by what the oil level actually is, what's going on, because it's otherwise hidden from sight. If there's a spiritual dipstick that tells us the present health and welfare of this church, it's the measure of our individual biblical commitment. Second, we are the children of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, I won't take us, you know the passage, I'll, I'll give you verses 1 through 17. It's a long passage, I won't have time to read it. Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. The essence, the big picture point of that passage is this. The Lord's children are disciplined by the Lord. Meaning, he cares for us like a true and godly parent cares for their children. And part of raising children is disciplining them, calling their attention to, to where they're veering off track, call, calling their attention to what they need to pay attention to. And the passage tells us that when we are disciplined by the Lord, it's never pleasant, it's never enjoyable, 
Um, I was only spanked a few times as a young child, and nowadays, you know how it is, influence, media, all of that says never, ever, or no matter what you do, spank your children, you're abusing your child. Of course, that is so ridiculous, but that's not the point of this message, other than to say, I was only spanked a few times as a child, but every single time I was spanked, it changed me for the better. It was foundational to my growth and development as a young person. And I didn't even know the Lord then, but I was learning the fear of the Lord through the fear of the spanking. So could we be going through a phase of the Lord's discipline by pointing out to us that there are some among us who have recently disconnected and fallen away in one way or the other? Absolutely we could be. And it would not shock me or surprise me that the Lord is calling all of our attention. It hurts me when someone disconnects from the Lord and someone disconnects from this body and it should hurt you as well and it should stir you to prayer. It should stir you to godly, loving concern for them. Third answer, and this one I think I will read and we'll end with this one today. Just as a reminder, Ephesians chapter six, I'm gonna read starting in verse 10. I know you know the passage. This is one snapshot of what the Christian life is all about. It's not the only thing that the Christian life is about, but it is about this and we should never forget it. The Christian life is a life of warfare. We live always because we live in this world. If, we, if any one of us died right this moment and went to heaven to be with the Lord, warfare would be over for us. There's no warfare in heaven anymore. There was, but there isn't anymore. Heaven is a war-free zone. But earth is only warfare. Only warfare, spiritually speaking. Finally, Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that, again, he says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Which is the evil day? It's the day that you're in battle. The evil day is the day where the battle is happening the strongest where you might not stand if you don't approach the battle in the right way. What's the right way to approach the battle? Being equipped with the whole armor of God. His, he says it twice. That's the only way you're going to survive the battle. So, you know, is everyone in this church fully geared up for battle every day that starts? Apparently not. Some have fallen in the battle. Here's the, here's the, here's the really difficult part of warfare in warfare there are casualties in warfare there are casualties we've had some casualties so what does that tell us what it tells me is better put on the armor or you'll be the next one on the casualty list don't be the next one and there's always the possibility as long as they're alive and breathing there's always the possibility of rescuing those that have fallen in battle. All right, let's, I know, you know what, I'm sorry, Caleb, I just burned up all of our time. Um, I had hoped for us to sing a song in which we would 
be singing in prayer. May the Lord, may he bless you from Zion. Uh, So I burned up the time. We're not going to be able to sing that song because we need to get ready for the next congregation coming in. But please, please, please take to heart um, this word of encouragement, word of exhortation. It's kind of a combination today. And um, can we remember to pray for one another? Can we remember to pray for those in our midst who have recently disconnected from the Lord, disconnected from this body, and who really, right at this present moment, are on a casualty list? Can we remember to pray for them from our hearts? And not just one, you know, kind of throwaway prayer. Okay, I got that off my list and I'm done with that. Let's keep those um, on our hearts until we see the Lord turn their hearts, their circumstances, and until we see the Lord strengthen us in the way that these struggles are intended to strengthen us. Amen? Amen. God bless you all. We'll look forward to seeing you next week at Home Church.